Well, good morning, and uh, my name is Tom Nelson. Welcome. Welcome to Christ Community and the Leewood Campus. And uh, this morning, we're continuing, uh, I trust, a very invigorating series through an amazing Old Testament book called Daniel. Imagine 2,500 years, almost 2,600 years ago, this book was written. And uh, isn't it astounding how it speaks with such breathtaking relevance to our 21st century lives? Last week, Daniel faced an internal crisis, a crisis of conscience. And last week, we gleaned three timeless principles for those of us who live in exile when we face a crisis of conscience. First, we learn to determine where our line is. Secondly, to pursue a wise approach. And third, to trust God with the outcome. And again, I encourage you, if you weren't here, perhaps to listen to the message as these two are deeply tied together. Our story continues this morning, and Daniel will not face an internal crisis as much as an external crisis. It's not a crisis of conscience as it is a crisis of an impossible situation. The question is, how will he respond? And what can we learn from it? So if you brought your Bible, which I hope you did in some form, turn to Daniel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. And as we go there, let me just say that you might think we're going to be here forever because it's a long chapter. So can I just set you at ease if you're newer to Christ's community? We'll still try to get done pretty close to time. It's a long chapter, a lot of verses, and the train from a literary standpoint is very challenging. But if you want to impress your friends, if you want to remember what it's all about, the storyline is simple. It's about how a bad dream becomes a big promotion. Got it? How a bad dream becomes a big promotion. The structure of these uh, verses follow this unfolding Scenes. It's a story with four scenes. First scene we're going to look at is a bad dream, or dreams, as we'll mention. On the heels of that is a demented king, and then on the heels of that is a god in heaven, and it builds to a literary crescendo in the story to a big promotion. So we go from a bad dream to a big promotion. Ready? Let's go. Scene one is about a bad dream, or dreams, and on the story opens in chapter two. Remember, in the original language, there's no chapter break, so the story continues. And this happens to be a bad night for a very bad king. Look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream or had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, we all can relate to that, can't we? You know, there are nights when we have dreams and then there's that dream. It's so bad that we can't go back to sleep. King Neb had one of those bad dreams. And we have to look, as thoughtful readers of the text, you'll notice the interplay between plural and singular. We don't know exactly, was this one dream? Was this one night? Was this one sequence of bad dreams where he keeps waking up? We don't know that. The grammar doesn't help us there. Or it could have been a sequence of dreams over a period of a few nights. We'll have to leave that to the mystery of the text. But we do know that King Neb is in a very bad state of mind. He has a very bad nightmare, but his nightmare becomes other people's nightmare. The scene shifts in verse 2 from his bad dream to his demented spirit. He's a demented king. In verse 2, King Neb demands the impossible, doesn't he? Daniel, writing this as an old man, looking back at this moment, wants us to know that this is a classic Godfather movie moment, 
Maybe Daniel didn't see that yet, I don't know, but he's pretty prescient. He has an offer they simply cannot refuse. He tells them, I've dreamt this, now tell me what it means, and I'm going to tear you limb from limb and destroy your homes. He is not boasting an idle threat. King Nebuchadnezzar is the original butcher of Baghdad. And I'm not going to go into details of what he did to people, but when they said, he said, I'm going to tear you limb from limb, he did that. This was not an idle threat. Facing such a dreadful situation, his advisors <laughs> try to reason with King Neb. And their rationality just gets him more stirred up. The text is very vivid. He is beside himself with seething anger, even though they say this is impossible for mere mortals. So in a fit of rage, King Neb does the unthinkable, the unimaginable, right? He orders by King Edict the execution of all his wisest counselors. The intelligentsia of Babylon. Now how Daniel learned about this death warrant or this contract on his head, he doesn't say. But he introduces us to an interesting character in the story. His name is Arioch. Arioch is the king's leading executioner. And somehow on receiving the king's edict, his orders, the sense of the text is that he quickly knocks on Daniel's door. Not for the purpose of carrying out the execution, but he wants to get Daniel's advice. You see this conversation in the text. He fills them in. It's not just having tea. It's a conversation. And King or Arioch knows Daniel. We know that from the earlier chapter. Daniel becomes an inner circle advisor. That's where King Arioch stood to protect the king. So King or Arioch knows Daniel has this special ability to interpret dreams. We discovered that earlier in the story in the last chapter, right? So he's got this last-ditch effort from his mad king that maybe Daniel has something to say here. Can Daniel address this grave matter? And Daniel scurries in to see the king, a sleepless, deranged, demented king. Serious courage. And we must not miss that it's not just, and most of us kind of know the story, it's not just the miracle of the interpretation of the dream. The first big miracle is not the dream interpretation. It is King Neb agreeing to Daniel's condition to have a stay of execution. Daniel, through the eyes of faith, say, I'm going to give you what you're looking for. Give me a moment. Now, what he's already done to the earlier advisors, you know, this is a divine intervention. The execution in is granted for at least a day, the stay of execution. Now, isn't this what we would call a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day at work? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine Daniel's job is not only in the line, we know his head is on the chopping block, no question. And can you imagine Daniel is eyeball to eyeball with the most powerful man in the world, his boss. He's lost his marbles. He's lost his mind. But it is not incidental in our storyline that young Daniel, we understood last week in the story, Daniel's probably 18 to 20 years of age here, that Daniel is facing his impossible situation at his place of work. For it is often at our place of work, whether it is paid or unpaid, where the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light have perhaps their greatest collision. It is in our work, is it not, in our experience where the brokenness of fellow employees or people are on display all the time, right? It's where the struggle for power takes place and position and jockeying. 
It's the collision of worldviews and values. Profoundly evident and challenging in the workplace. That's true in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. It's true in the 21st century. For followers of Jesus, in our cultural context, isn't it the workplace that presents to us perhaps the greatest challenge to living our Christian faith and also the greatest opportunity? Like Daniel, you may be dealing with a very demanding, difficult boss. Now, if you're a boss and demanding difficult, that's another message for you. But you may have someone right in mind. Here's King Neb you see every Monday morning. You may be experiencing the intolerance of tolerance based on what you believe and how you live as a Christian. You may be increasingly facing pressure to conform your Christian values, your ethics, your convictions in your classroom at school or in college or in your workplace. You may be very likely overlooked for a promotion. You may be wrongfully terminated simply for your Christian faith with increasing frequency in our culture. This summer, I met Kelvin Cochran and heard his story. Amazing person. Kelvin Cochran is one of the most highly decorated, regarded fire chiefs in the United States, who for many years received the highest recommendation and reviews, not only for his competency in leading the whole firefighter group in Atlanta, but his impeccable character and how he treats everyone with kindness and fairness regardless of their lifestyle or views. No question about that. Impeccable. In 2015, let me go back, in 2012, give you an example, he was named Fire Chief Magazine Chief of the Year. In January of 2015, Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed fired him for holding and expressing religious beliefs that he and city officials viewed as unacceptable. The backdrop is on his own time as a member of a Christian congregation in Atlanta. He wrote a book for the men's ministry. It's a very large church. And in his book, he describes his understanding of what the scripture teaches about human sexuality and human behavior and gender. And by articulating his own religious beliefs, He was terminated. Calvin Cochran is not an exception these days. His case is being litigated, and the outcome is very uncertain as it goes through the courts. See, one of the characteristics of life in exile are impossible and unjust situations that arise in the workplace simply because of belief and conviction. As a follower of Jesus, how will you and I respond in an increasingly hostile culture? I don't think Daniel could have ever imagined the dire situation that confronted him on that Monday morning or Tuesday morning when he arrived at his job. Neither can any of us this week as we arrive on our job. 
Daniel is highly competent. He's very respectful to everyone. He understood his powerful boss, but King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't his ultimate boss. Daniel, as a young Jewish lad, learned a fundamental truth of the universe and that he lived and served and worked before an audience of one. Here he is before the most powerful human being in the world. And yet he understands who his ultimate boss is. In our workplaces, we must not only cultivate the presence of God moment by moment, do our work well, love and serve our coworkers, our customers, but we must keep a vertical perspective remembering who our ultimate boss is. Isn't it fascinating in the first century of Roman culture that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae. The first century, most Christians, when they came to faith, Jew and Gentile, lost their jobs, were alienated from society, often were shunned by their families. That's why in the book of Acts, the new church comes together to care for needs of people who have lost their economic strength and ability. It was in that context in the first hostile century where the local church began to thrive. Paul writes these words, whatever you do, Colossians 3, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now notice what Paul says. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done with no partiality. Paul anticipates the challenges of the workplace. We have a bad dream or dreams. We have a demented king, and now the literary spotlight focuses on the God of heaven. Notice with me, there is a sense of heightened urgency. Can you imagine Daniel leaving the king's presence? Sense of relief and exhilaration. Only thinking through the eyes of the faith, oh Lord, come through, oh Lord, come through. He heads home. Awaiting for them, him there are the three deep godly friends we inter were introduced to in their Hebrew names last week. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And Daniel is clear to tell us in the story, you can look more at it today or this week. <laughs> they gather together on their knees in Jewish custom. I have the picture of holding hands. And they seek God in fervent prayer. It has been said by many that imminent death has a way of uniquely concentrating the mind. And these young men, their minds are concentrated. No distractions. Together they cry out to God. And notice what Daniel says. They ask for the supernatural intervention of God revealing the king's dream and sparing their life, but not just their life. Do you see it? He is very explicit in the text. It's more explicit in the original. And all the intelligentsia and the wise people of Babylon, in common grace, 
Daniel understands even people with different worldviews, even occultic people, all his associates are made in the image of God and are of value to God. How important that is for us. Daniel and his friends clearly face an impossible situation. Daniel goes out of his way to describe it. Humanly, it's impossible. But they grasp this hopeful truth. It's a truth you and I must grasp that crosses the sands of time across time to our lives right now. And that's this. They understand this. An impossible situation is a God-sized opportunity. That's it. That's it. They learned as young Jewish boys the history of God's faithfulness to them. During Passover and other times, their parents told them the stories of what it was like for their four, um, their um, relatives early on to be under the thumb of Egypt. God's miraculous deliverance and the Red Sea. Now they find themselves in Babylon, another king, not a pharaoh, the butcher of Baghdad, and they face a Red Sea moment on their own. Isn't it interesting? The text says they go to bed without an answer. And there's no hint of sleeplessness. Only Neb is pacing back and forth. Sometime in the night, Daniel doesn't tip his hand here, the God of the universe visits Daniel's bedroom. God not only reveals to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, but exactly what it meant. In just the nick of time, God answered their prayer. And the God of heaven seldom shows up early. Whether it's the 6th century B.C. or the 21st century A.D., but he is never late. This was a night Daniel would never forget in his life. It was a defining moment. God's answer to prayer here will give Daniel greater confidence in God answering his prayers later in the book. And that's how prayer works. When God answers your prayer at whatever level, it gives you the confidence to trust him more. And we do not understand, we do not even grasp Daniel's story unless we understand the threat of prayer. Notice how he includes his rapturous praise to God, not his petition. Do you see that in verses 20 through 23? Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the God of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Yes, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells within him. To you, O God of my fathers, you see that history? I give thanks and praise. You think this was a Red Sea moment? For you give me wisdom and might and have now made known to me when we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. It has been said wisely that when you get a glimpse of someone's heart, you get it best when you listen to them pray. Here in Daniel's prayer, we have one of the most beautiful open windows into a young man's beautiful and devoted soul to God in all of Scripture. The depth of young Daniel's prayer reflects his deep understanding of God. In Daniel's prayer, God's wisdom and strength you hear are repeated over and over again as well as God's sovereignty. Daniel's prayer reflects his growing and deepening intimacy with God, and he's probably 20 years old. That's how incredible this young man is. So if you are younger, 
Be encouraged by Daniel. You can be young and have an amazing relationship with God. Already in chapter two, I want you to see this strong thread of prayer. You'll see as, we, as the teaching team works through this text throughout the tapestry of Daniel's life. You can't understand Daniel's life without the strong thread of prayer. At the break of dawn, can you imagine? I have this idea in my little demented imagination. Daniel rushes out of his door. I don't know if he slept after that. He rushes to see Arioch, the king's leading guard and executioner. Arioch immediately gets Daniel in to see the king. I have this crazy idea that Nebuchadnezzar was still in his PJs. Just don't know. It's early and it's urgent. Notice also in the stories, you read it more. <laughs> Arioch is an opportunist. He wants the king to know that he found Daniel. <laughs> but Daniel immediately <laughs> evaporates any human credit into thin air at that moment and gives glory to God, doesn't he? Over and over again. And beginning in verse 31 all the way through verse 45, that's a chunk of text. It's the story of this dream and the interpretation. Let me just highlight a little bit, and you can look more carefully at it. At the center of King Neb's dream is this incredible, I think of him as the incredible Hulk. It's a Hulk-like massive statue, big and strong, and it has the shape of a human. It's foreboding and frightening. It has a gold head, a silver torso, bronze thighs, and iron and clay feet. So let your imagination go there. Then comes this large stone, and it strikes the massive statue. And instead of just shattering the pieces, Daniel is very clear to say it pulverizes it to dust. And the wind off, Hamsin wind off the desert blows it to nothing. Just like that. Stone grows massively, filling the whole earth. The dream is about the future. No wonder Neb was concerned. I think Neb had a lot of understanding what it was. He just needed to confirm, but that's my opinion. It's a glimpse of the future. The head of gold, he describes, right? It's the wealthy, powerful kingdom of Babylon. Talk about speaking truth to power. And Daniel doesn't stutter. He's loving. Your days are numbered, Neb. But not only you, there's another kingdom coming after you. Kingdom of the Medes and Persians, they're going to take over. They're the silver tarso. Won't last long. Another kingdom, it's going to emerge. The Greeks, they're going to come. They're the bronze thighs. Then the Romans are going to come. Feet of iron and clay. But that kingdom's going to fall kaput too. And the massive stone morphs into this large mountain and describes a kingdom not set up by earthly kings, but the God of heaven, a kingdom will never be destroyed. God's message to Nebuchadnezzar is clear. I just think Nebuchadnezzar needed it confirmed. Nebuchadnezzar, like many kings, whatever size of the perch, are just a bit too big for their britches. We'll see more of this coming in the story. Big two-by-four is coming. Basically, the dream's telling, hey, you're, you're only on that kingly perch because I put you there. There's only one sovereign God and only one nation lasts forever. And looking back at our standpoint of redemptive history, we know the language of stone is very significant. Jesus will call himself the cornerstone. All across the pages of Scripture, Jesus' footprints are everywhere. And Daniel, he's all over the place. And he's going to show up 
next week in an amazing way. Our Lord and this story. God's message to Nebuchadnezzar is timeless and timely to our historical moment, particularly as it relates to our nation and the impending presidential election. I'm going to be responsible, but I got your attention. <laughs> we must remember that we are exiles too. And what looks like, at least to me, and as I said last week, I'm not a prophet, I'm a pastor, more and more like America the Babylon. We have a great need now for love, sacrificial love, for deep humility, for great courage, for buoyant hopefulness, and lots of divine wisdom we need. As exiles, we need wisdom in walking that fine line between a proper commitment to our beloved nation and plunging off the edge in a free fall of an idolatrous nationalism. We are called to love and serve our neighbors, to be good and responsible citizens of our nation. But our ultimate loyalty is our citizenship with the kingdom of Jesus, our Lord, forever and ever. It is not to say that our presidential election does not matter, it does. But the way I read scripture is that God is not in heaven being distraught, wringing his omnipotent hands about the US presidential election, wondering what he's going to do. Neither should we. After interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel describes what happens next in verses 46 to 49. It is the crescendo of the story. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Can you imagine that scene? And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect, that means the leader, over all the wise intelligentsia of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed, and he uses, it's fascinating because this all actually is not in Hebrew now, it's in Aramaic. He appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And notice how this ends, but Daniel remained, the picture's right by the king's side at the court. Instead of losing his job or his head, <laughs> Daniel gets one big promotion. Well, King Neb may not be ready to worship God fully, there's more coming in the story, but here he's at least beginning to recognize who the one true God is. I'm not sure where King Neb's heart is at this point. But I'm sure King Neb understands power when he sees it. <laughs> he also knows talent when he sees it. And he wants to cultivate curry with Daniel and Daniel's God in favor. What stands out to me is how this story ends. Daniel wisely stewards his workplace influence to get strategic jobs for his wise and godly friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as you read this story with fresh curiosity, you would go, who would have ever thought that a bad dream and a bad king would lead to a big promotion and great influence for God? How is that possible? 
that such an impossible situation becomes a God-sized opportunity. That's the God we serve. I have this sense, not in the text, but when, when Daniel came back to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they had high Jewish vibes. <laughs> and I think there was giddy delight everywhere. How good is God? Daniel lived as an exile. He faced impossible situations, but he served a God of the impossible. We must not forget that at every turn, Daniel faced a culture hostile to his faith. Yet he thrived in Babylon and did not lose his faith. It only grows through the book. How did he do it? We know one answer. Daniel's life was tethered to the Old Testament that has been written to this point. Jeremiah, the prophet. In fact, in Daniel 9, he will tell us that. Jeremiah wrote to the exiles its inspired words in Je Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare. That means the shalom is the Hebrew word, but it means the comprehensive flourishing of everything. Seek the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile. Notice I have sent you. And pray to the Lord, pray to the Lord, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Yes, on its behalf. For in its comprehensive flourishing, you will find your flourishing. How awesome is God? As exiles and followers of Jesus, we live in a nation that is increasingly similar to Babylon to me. But what should our response be? To throw self-righteous stones at our culture in mean-spirited ways? To hunker down in fear? To circle the wagons of our own self-preservation? To ignore the brokenness around us? God's word does not allow us that choice. Jesus calls us to be salt and light in our cultural moment. And that requires both, hear me carefully, increasing purity of our lives and increasing proximity to culture. And a posture of humble confidence and an attitude of hopeful realism. No matter how dark the world around us is, we are not allowed to wash our hands of broken people or places or to circle the wagons of our own self-preservation. When the times get tough, we don't go AWOL. We stay faithfully present. We love our neighbors. We bear gospel witness, both with our life and our words, knowing that in a world that seems to be out of control, our sovereign God is in control. Life in exile is not a time for fearfulness. It's a time for great hopefulness. When it's darkest, the light shines brightest. One of the things that stuns me, and I want you to watch this through this series, as you go through the story of Daniel, there is not even the faintest scent of fear. There is just the fragrance of hopeful confidence in God all the way through the story. Russell Moore speaks insightfully as a thoughtful evangelical Christian leader about our insightful, about our cultural moment. Let me read what he says. We should then be the last people on earth to sculpt back in fear or apathy. And we ought also to be the last people on earth to uncritically laud any political leader or movement as though this were what we've been waiting for. 
We need leaders and allies, but we don't need a Messiah. That job is filled, and he's feeling just fine. We are neither irrationally exuberant nor fearfully isolated. And the question for us in the Church of America, the true Church of America, will we turn inward or focus outward? Let me suggest three thoughts for your consideration and application as I wrap this up. First, focus outward in your work. Whether you are presently paid for your work or not, how you are stewarding your workplace influence really matters. When we hear the word stewardship, many of us, if we have a jaded background with church, we think of money and wealth only, and that's important. But the most important thing, perhaps, the most important stewardship or the most far-reaching stewardship is how we steward our work influence. You don't have to have some big-time job or big salary or a big place on the org chart to have a massive influence in the world. How you serve your customers, your fellow employees, and how you further the common good in through your work. See, your work is not just about you. It's not just about your career advancement. It's not just about paying the bills, as important as that is. It is about a mission God has uniquely entrusted to you It's not just on Sunday where the church is on mission. The church's primary mission occurs where you, as an apprentice of the carpenter of Nazareth, show up at work or school tomorrow morning. Focus outward in your work. Secondly, focus outward in your witness. How are you looking for opportunities to share your faith? God calls all of us as Christians to be his ambassador, to share the good news of the gospel with others, to share our story of how Christ is and changing our lives. Each day, we are given the opportunity to share the gospel with those we work with and those we go to school with. We are to witness with our life and our words. And sometimes we hear this phrase, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. I understand what people are trying to say, but that's not the whole story. The witness of both your life and your words matter. It's an incredible opportunity to share the good news of the gospel where our hope is. Our cultural decline is increasingly evident to many around us, many who do not share our faith or worldview. There's an incredible consensus of a social unraveling, a serious economic reality, and great polarization. People are lamenting the deplorable state of politics, regardless of their persuasion. Many are experiencing the fear of terrorism and economic uncertainty all around us. As followers of Jesus, we have been given an amazing opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ with others like never before. Could it be in this moment of darkness and growing cultural darkness that the Spirit of God is moving in powerful ways to renew the church, to open the doors of the church's repentance and the windows of heaven and bringing a spiritual awakening to our needy land? I don't know about you, but I'm praying for that end. Will you join me in that? A visitation from God. Lastly, focus outward in your prayers. More than economic, military, or political power, the power of prayer available to us as followers of Jesus is staggeringly immense. So what are you praying for these days? Are you praying for your own needs and concerns? Jesus cares about that. We are to cast our care on him for he cares for us. There's no care in your heart this morning that Jesus does not care about. 
But what if each of us focused considerable prayer urgency outward on our schools, our businesses, our government? What if we fervently prayed in our homes and our community groups that the Spirit of God would come mightily upon our land? What if we prayed more for our nation and fretted less about it? Life in exile means we are going to face seemingly impossible situations. Life will increasingly be out of control. But impossible situations are God-sized opportunities. We know that because on the Roman cross, Jesus faced an impossible situation. The power of Rome and hell itself hovered over him. And it seemed for three days, didn't it, that the dark clouds of death and despair had won over Jerusalem. But three days later, an impossible situation becomes a God-sized opportunity. Peering into the empty tomb, the hymn writer of old penned these words. Up from the grave. He arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever. Let the saints dream. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. The empty tomb declares for all time. There are no impossible situations. They're just God-sized opportunities. Let's pray. Lord, many of us are facing difficult situations. Some seem impossible. We pray that you would draw us close to yourself. We pray for our nation, for the church in America, across the globe, for a spiritual awakening. Yes, your plans are still to prosper us. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. Lord, faithful forever, perfect in love, you are sovereign over us.